Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 10th, 2019. Short episode today, but an important teaching one. As we continue to work our way through the series, A Pirate Christian's Guide to Understanding the Old Testament. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over it again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption uh, by the average evangelical is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. There's a whole lot of ear-scratching going on and rebellion going on. And a lot of people who have not properly studied and shown themselves approved as workmen who need not blush with embarrassment, but who can rightly divide and handle the Word of Truth. Now, we've been working our way through uh, parts of the Old Testament. We started a series a few weeks ago. Uh, titled A Pirate Christian's Guide to Understanding the Old Testament. And we've taken a look at Daniel in the lion's den. We've taken a look at Joseph. And today we're also going to be in the book of Genesis. So let me ask you right up front. What do you think of that story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Now, if you've listened to bad preaching on this text, and believe me when I tell you, there's a lot of, really bad sermons on this text. Over and again, the the person who's preaching will say that, you see, this text is telling you that you need to be willing to sacrifice that thing, whatever that thing is, uh, to God. And, and, and you, you, don't, you don't need to hang on to it. Once you sacrifice it to God, then God's going to give it back to you. So what we're going to do is we're going to demonstrate that this text really is about Jesus. And I have been debating with myself 
do I want to do the um, geography first or do I want to read the story first? And I've said what I'm going to what we're going to do is we're going to read Genesis 22. We'll note a few interesting things about the text. And uh, and one of them has to do with uh, uh, the uh, the Hebrew word uh, ra'ah. And uh, we'll take a look at how that's used in, in Genesis 22. Then we're going to skip ahead to 1 Chronicles 21. And you go, what are we going there for? Oh, don't worry. When we're done with that, we're going to go into 2 Chronicles chapter 3. <laughs> I, believe me when I tell you, all of this has everything to do with the fact that this text is about Jesus because that's where you kind of flesh this all out. <sighs> so, yeah, okay. All right. So relax. We'll, we'll work our way through this. And don't worry, I'll show you all of the relevant stuff. So let's uh, whirl up the Bible here and let's get to it. Genesis chapter 22. Let's start reading and see what's going on here because there's something fascinating going on here. Remember, Jesus himself says scriptures are about him. And if you pay attention to the details, you're going to go, there's something weird about this text. And, uh, and right, because the weird things actually point to Jesus. I'll explain that. So after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Itzhak. Now, when was Isaac born? The Hebrew, by the way, is Itzhak. Um, When was he born? Before or after Ishmael? After Ishmael. So Abraham at this point has how many sons? Two. So what's this only son stuff? And I would argue that that's kind of like your, uh, you know, linguistic grammatical clue that something funky's going on here because God is seeing through the lineage of, of Abraham because you know, up to this point, uh, Isaac isn't, he's not married yet. And so because he's not married yet, the, uh, the lineage of the Messiah has come to Itzhak and no further. He hasn't gone any further. So, so you'll note that there is this thing that happens in the Old Testament, and that is is that when the line of the Messiah has come to one point and hasn't progressed any further, oftentimes weird things happen. And this is one of those. So take your son, your only son. And since I already tell you this is really about Jesus, I would note that there's some fascinating language that we should pay attention to in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, 16 in particular. But listen to how these these texts read. John 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. The monogenes theos, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So, And then the verse that everyone's familiar with, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The monogenes, uh, you know, tan huion tan monogene, yeah, <clears throat> the, the son, the only begotten, is how that reads in the Greek. Okay, we've got that kind of hammered out there. So I would argue that this, your son, your only son, kind of harkens to that only begotten son talk about Jesus the monogenes theos, the only begotten God, the uh, tan huion tan monogene, the only begotten son. This is what this is referring to. 
So take your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. All right, now, he's going to go to Mount Moriah. Do you know where Mount Moriah is today? Some of you might know, and some of you probably have never been told this. We'll work this out. But note that this is an important spot. This is like super-de-duper important. This is like ground zero important kind of spot. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's keep reading. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. what, what, What was Jesus writing when he entered Jerusalem? In his triumphal entry, you know, Palm Sunday. A donkey, the colt, the pole of a donkey, right? Just saying, it's just, you know, these are connection points that seem to be parallel. So on the third day, verse 4 says, yeah, I got to pay attention to that third day stuff. I mentioned that in part two of Pirate Christian's Guide to Understanding the Old Testament. That third day stuff always usually points you to Jesus. So on the third day... Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw, and the Hebrew verb is ra'ah, and that's kind of an important thing here. This verb is going to show up. Now, ra'ah is its lexical form, but it's going to show up several times here. So, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Not a throwaway bit of detail, because ra'ah is going to come up in this text, as well as First Chronicles 21. So then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. I'm just saying, this sounds like a, a dress rehearsal for Jesus's crucifixion because Jesus was made to carry his cross for a bit, had a hard time doing so. He ended up struggling and collapsing under the load but just saying isaac is the one being sacrificed and he's carrying the wood uh, for his for his own offering weird right so he took in his hand the fire and the knife and so both of them together and isaac itzhak said to his father abraham my father and he said here i am my son he said behold the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering good question where is the lamb for the burnt offering and then abraham says something and like no truer words could possibly be said so abraham said god will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son so they went both of them together and when they came to the place of which god had told him abraham built the altar there now note this is an important little detail too what does abraham do when he gets there he builds an altar. Remember, this is the place that he saw, Ra'ah, from afar. So he gets there and he built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Itzhak, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Hmm? Then Abraham reached out his hand took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of Yahweh. And now this is kind of an interesting bit here. Uh, The, uh, the, the Malach, the, the angel of Yahweh 
many would argue this is none other than Jesus himself. Yeah, so when the angel of the Lord shows up, it's a big deal. Uh, when, the, uh, when the angel of Yahweh shows up, oftentimes we're dealing with a theophany and a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Jesus Christ. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, and listen to this, Abraham, Abraham. You know, I can think of a couple other places where Jesus talks like this. You think of on the road to Damascus, the Saul of Tarsus is on his way there to round up Christians and arrest them, right? And he appears to him in a bright light and ends up blinding him. But what does he say to him? Saul, Saul. Or you think of when Jesus corrects Martha, you know, when uh, when she's doing all the cooking and cleaning and her sister Mary is is uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus doing nothing except for receiving from Jesus. And she says, tell Jesus, you tell her to help me. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha. So here an interesting thing happens. The angel of Yahweh says to him, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your, here it is again, your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. Ra'ah. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked, he saw. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So the Lord himself will provide the, <laughs> the sacrifice. And he did. Here we've got a ram caught in a thicket. Now, let me ask you, um, when you think of thickets, what kind of foliage are we talking about here? You know, the kind of foliage that usually has thorns. Uh-huh. So you'll note that this ram is caught in a thicket on Mount Moriah, and thickets are thorns, they're thorny foliage. So you can say that this ram is caught, well, by a crown of thorns. Hmm. Interesting, right? So Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So this ram becomes Itzhak's substitute. Mm -hmm. Important stuff. So Abraham called the name of that place, and here's where we need to take a look at, like, the literal translation of the text. He called the name of the place, and I'll highlight this in the Hebrew, Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh Yireh. And Yireh is the, uh, is the call in perfect third masculine singular of the Hebrew word ra'ah. To see. So I know the ESV says Yahweh will provide, but a stiff wooden translation of the Hebrew here is the name of the place is Yahweh will see. That's weird. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm curious right now. I'm going to check something. There's this thing called the Young's Literal Translation. I want to see what the Young's... In Yahweh Yira. <laughs> it doesn't even translate it. <laughs> the Young's literal translation does not even translate it. 
Oh, these people cheesed out. Okay, so they, the Young's literal translation just gives it the uh, you know the Hebrew itself. Yahweh, Yireh, Yahweh will, and then literal translation would be see. Yahweh will see. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. And you, you, well, we can say here, um, it will be seen. Yahweh, <laughs> yeah, I just working with the Hebrew. It's a little, it's a little tough to pull this over into English, but you get the idea here. But the literal translation is Yahweh will see. All right, all right. So what do we do with that? Yahweh will see on this mountain. It is said of this place. The name is called Yahweh Yireh. What do we do with that? Well, let's take a look at the fulfillment of this prophecy and where the fulfillment takes place. Now, remember, at this place on Mount Moriah, Abraham built an altar. I know of another fellow who built an altar at that exact same place, that same mountain. And here's where that story is told. First Chronicles 21. This is the account of David calling for a census. Contrary to what God has told um, Israel, he's going to disobey God here. And he's going to call for a census. And what he's going to do is evil and wicked in God's sight. And, uh, well, something terrible is going to happen and something wonderful, too. So First Chronicles 21. So Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David sent, said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May Yahweh add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Yeah, why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed, went throughout all Israel, came back to Jerusalem, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. And I would note, the next verse is going to make it clear this was abhorrent to God also. So God was displeased with the thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. And you're going to note here, here we have an example of one man's sin and everybody being guilty because of it. This this is kind of a recurring theme. I can think of one man's sin that has had a huge impact on me as well as you, and that would be the sin of Adam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you'll note here that there is a sense in which one person's sin causes the entire nation everybody to become guilty that's david's sin here so pay attention because something amazing is going on here so god was displeased with the thing and he struck israel david said to god i have sinned greatly in that i have done this thing but now please take away the iniquity of your servant for i have acted very foolishly and yahweh spoke to gad david's seer this will be his prophet saying go and say to david thus says yahweh three things i offer you Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Choose what you will, 
either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of Yahweh, pestilence on the land with the angel of Yahweh, uh the angel of Yahweh himself, destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is very great. So David knows God. Not only that, he knows that God's mercy and forgiveness is great. So, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So, Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, listen to what the text says. Yahweh saw. And it's the same verb. This is just amazing. So, and, and, and it reads in the Hebrew that Ra'ah, he saw, Yahweh is the subject. Ra'ah, Yahweh. Remember what it said in Genesis 22. And it said in Genesis 22 that, that the name of that place is, was named by Abraham was Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh will see. And in then here, in First Chronicles 21, it says, <laughs> as the angel of the Lord was going to destroy Jerusalem, it's, it just literally says, Yahweh saw. Yahweh saw. There's the fulfillment of the name of the place. Yahweh saw. What did he see? What did he see? Hmm. This is, well, what he saw is a very important place place where Jesus was going to be crucified. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So anyway, so Yahweh saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes, and he saw the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven. Now a little bit of a note here. When Jesus was crucified, where was he standing? Between heaven and earth. While he was on the cross, he was between, standing between heaven and earth. So here we have the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven. And his hand, in his hand was a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem for, because of sin. And he's going to punish, right? And so how do, how do we get the angel of the Lord to sheathe his sword? Well, that's the place where Yahweh saw, right? So, so then David and the elders, they clothed in sackcloth, they fell on their faces. And David said to God, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Yahweh, my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be on your people. And so here's the thing. David is the one who committed the sin. He needs a substitute. He, his, he can't, yeah, he, he needs a sacrifice. So now the angel of Yahweh had commanded Gad to say to David, 
that David should go up and raise an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And we're going to find out where this place is in just a minute here. Uh, unmistakably, that's amazing. All right, so build an altar on the floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of Yahweh. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. David said to Ornan, give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to Yahweh. Notice that this place was a threshing floor. That's where the wheat and the chaff are separated. <laughs> Man, think about the implications here. Those who believe in Christ are the wheat. Those who don't believe in Christ and what he's done for them on the cross are the chaff. The cross is the dividing point. It is the real threshing floor of all of humanity. So this, this little theme here is just important. So give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it and altar to Yahweh. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, take it. Let my Lord, the king, do what seems good to him. See, I have given the oxen for burnt offerings and thre the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I, I give it all to I give it all. David said, the king David said to Ornan, no, I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Yahweh what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to Yahweh and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on Yahweh. And Yahweh answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. That's right. The same kind of fire that Elijah called down from heaven that burnt up his offering. The Lord answered David's prayer with fire from heaven. And where is this spot exactly? The, uh, the place of the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Because here, this is, I'm going to argue, and you're going to see it quite clearly in a second. This is the second time an altar to Yahweh has built there, been built there. So then Yahweh commanded the angel, after the sacrifice has been sacrificed, at that very specific place, the angel commanded the, uh, then Yahweh commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. Where's the spot? Well, Second Chronicles 3 says it quite clearly. Verse 1, Second Chronicles 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh. Solomon's the son of David. In Jerusalem. Where? On Mount Moriah where Yahweh had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Hmm. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Yeah. Important spot, don't you think? So Abraham built an altar there. David built an altar there, and his sacrifice was accepted by fire from heaven. Solomon built the temple on this spot, Mount Moriah. So now we know where this took place. 
if Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, that means that the Temple Mount is where Mount Moriah is. Right. Let's take a look. So, if we were to Google, go to you know maps.google.com and Google Dome of the Rock, and it, this will be what would come up, and you'll note that here, the Dome of the Rock, is on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And you're going to note that it says Islamic Shrine Housing Foundation Stone. Hmm. It's going to be important. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's, let's shall we, do take a step back. Let's head just east of the Dome of the Rock. And on, you know, east of, directly east of the Dome of the Rock is the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. You can see them both here. Uh, Gethsemane, as well as the Mount of Olives, that's just east of the Dome of the Rock, which is kind of smack dab in the middle of the Temple Mount itself. Now, there's no temple there because God, in his judgment, judged Israel and scraped the Temple Mount, temple off the Temple Mount. It sits in a rubble heap off to one side of the uh, Temple Mount, but you kind of got the idea. So just, uh, just east is the Mount of Olives, and the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's take a look at the Temple Mount, shall we? And this is a photograph. This is a panographic photograph taken from the Mount of Olives. And you can see here, we've got a valley. And, you know, this valley then, at the very bottom of it, you begin to ascend a hill. And that hill is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. Remember? Second Chronicles 3 says Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem, where? On Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared. The place where Abraham said the name of the place will be Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh will see. That's the place where Yahweh saw. Right? What did he see? Well, this is Mount Moriah. This is where Abraham was. And we're going to note a couple of things here. You're going to note then that as we look up, in fact, I'm going to see if I can zoom in on this here. This right here on the eastern wall, that is that little feature is called the Golden Gate. And you'll notice it's all plastered up. Yep. Uh, that's supposedly the, the gate that Jesus is going to walk through when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the Muslims have buried a whole bunch of their dead there and inside the you know what is the Golden Gate as well, apparently to stop Jesus. I, I'm pretty sure corpses are not capable of, of stopping Christ. But that's a fascinating feature there on the eastern wall. And so we'll, we'll zoom in now a little bit here. And we're going to pay attention to a, an important feature. In fact, let me zoom out just a little bit from the Temple Mount itself. That's the Dome of the Rock. And you've probably seen, you know, if you've ever seen photographs of Jerusalem, then you've seen that. But you're going to note over here that uh, 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 as part of the ascent up Mount Moriah, that there are these two blue domes. And I'll put them dead center here. These two blue domes, those are part of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre the place where Christ was crucified and the place where Christ was buried. Yeah, you'll know it's on Mount Moriah itself. That's where Christ was crucified and buried. So, and if we want to take a look at it, like another view of this real quick here, 
Um, this is another view from uh, the Mount of Olives. And you can see here the Dome of the Rock. And then just on the right-hand side, you can see the two domes from the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That's how close these things are. And this is another great photograph. Again, the two domes just to the right of the uh, Dome of the Rock there. That's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, what's inside the Dome of the Rock? Did you know you can actually take a look at the inside of the Dome of the Rock, at least virtually, at uh, Google Maps, if you go to Google Maps, uh, and you, you take a look at, I like looking at the 360 photos that they have available. Uh, you can use a Google Cardboard. I have an Oculus uh, Go. Uh, this is how I do my virtual tourism because <laughs> it, it's a lot cheaper to, you know, to visit Jerusalem on other people's vacation photos. I'm just saying. But anyway, so this is the inside, by the way, of the Dome of the Rock. And we're looking from this view. This is a 360, 360-degree photograph of the Dome of the Rock. We're looking up at the top of the Dome of the Rock, and let's pan down, shall we, and see what is there inside of it. Well, there it is. That's the foundation stone. This is the site where Abraham offered Isaac. And this is considered a super-de-duper holy site in both Islam as well as Judaism, the foundation stone's kind of a big deal, if you would. So there you have it. That's what's inside the Dome of the Rock, and you can see all of that. And where is this exactly? Mount Moriah. But see, the thing is, where Jews and Islam looks on Mount Moriah is at an empty stone. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre has an empty tomb. And so you'll note then, coming back to Genesis 22. Abraham named that place Yahweh Yehweh. Yahweh will see. And it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. It shall be seen. And it was provided. It was seen there. On that exact mountain, on Mount Moriah, on the slopes of Mount Moriah, just west of the Temple Mount, Jesus Christ was crucified and he stood between heaven and earth as he suffered for your sins and mine. He's the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it was there that the Lord provided the sacrifice. Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket. He is the son, the only begotten son of God. And God himself provided his own son as a sacrifice for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God. See, on that mountain, the Lord saw he provided for you and for me, so that we can be forgiven and reconciled. That is the importance of Genesis 22. And it has nothing to do with you being willing to sacrifice something, and then don't worry, when you sacrifice it, God will give it back. No, it was always about pointing to Jesus in type and shadow, and what, would, what God would accomplish and see, and what we would see take place there on Mount Moriah. Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the spot you want to be focused on, not, not the foundation stone, the place where the Lord did see and provide. So hopefully you found this to be helpful.
at least eye-opening. If you were not familiar with this at all, uh, it, your mind might actually be blown a little bit. But that's kind of the point, is that you know when you start looking for Jesus, he's everywhere, and all of this connects to him. This text br- brings us then comfort and assurance and in an amazing way, the prophecy of what was prophesied regarding what would take place on Mount Moriah and ultimately what God provided for us there in his own son who bled and died so that we can be forgiven. Because how does it say it in John three sixteen That God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life given as a gift. So consider that. Consider what, you know, your own sin that Jesus has bled and died for. Repent and trust in this Jesus whom God provided, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and mine so that we can be reconciled and not have the punishment that we deserve, but instead can be forgiven by God himself. So what'd you think? Hopefully you found this helpful. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.